Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! This is surely, for many people, a night of pride, surely a night of payback, surely a night of tears, hugs, dreams, and memories. Italy's first far-right leader since Benito Mussolini, Giorgia Maloney, has declared victory. Her Brothers of Italy party is allied with Spain's far-right Vox party, Poland's ruling Nationalist Law and Justice party, the Sweden Democrats party, which emerged out of its neo-Nazi movement. We'll look at the return of fascism in Italy with Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, author of Strongman, Mussolini to the Present. Then, to the far-right here at home, as the House Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection is set to hold its first fall public hearing Wednesday, we look at one of the key groups that helped plan and carry out the attack as part of their goal to normalize political violence. What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a White name. White supremacists and right like supremacists. White supremacists and right Proud boys. boys. Stand back and stand by. Individuals associated with two violent extremist groups have been charged with seditious conspiracy in connection with the January 6th attack. One is the Oath Keepers. They are a group of armed anti-government extremists. The other group is the Proud Boys. We'll speak with reporter Andy Campbell, author of the book We Are Proud Boys, how a right-wing street gang ushered in a new era of American extremism. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Iran, at least 41 people have been killed in a series of escalating protests demanding justice for a 22-year-old Kurdish woman named Masa Amini, who died in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. The Norway-based group Iran Human Rights has put the death toll at 57, with hundreds arrested over the past 10 days. On Saturday, Iran's president, Ibrahim Raisi, vowed to decisively cracked down on the protests. Solidarity rallies were also held across the globe this weekend. In Iraq, dozens of Iraqi and Iranian Kurds rallied Saturday to protest the death of Masa Amini. They killed Masa Amini because of a piece of hair coming out from her hijab. The youth is asking for freedom. They are asking for rights for all the people, because everyone has the right to have dignity and freedom. The youth, the 15, 16-year-old, are asking for rights and freedom, but they kill us. They do not have a conscience, no humanity. They are killing immediately. In news from Italy, Giorgia Maloney appears poised to become Italy's first far-right leader since World War II in the reign of Benito Mussolini. Maloney declared victory after projections show neo-fascist Brothers of Italy party placed first in Sunday's elections, with about 26 percent of the vote, up from just 4 percent in 2018. Maloney campaigned in on an anti-immigration platform and will become Italy's first female prime minister. Maloney spoke to support Sunday night. 
Però sarà passata, notte when this passata, night is over, we have to remember, uh, we must remember, that we are not at the end point, we are at the starting point. It is from tomorrow that we must prove our worth. We'll have more on the Italian election, the rise of the far-right neo-fascists in Europe after headlines. A county judge in Arizona has banned nearly all abortions in the state, citing a law signed in 1864 when Arizona was still a territory. Under the 1864 law, there's no exception for rape or incest, or and anyone who helps a woman obtain an abortion could face two to five years in prison. The head of Planned Parenthood slammed the abortion ban, saying it was, quote, sending Arizonians back nearly 150 years. The judge's ruling came a day before a new law went into effect in Arizona banning abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. The United States is warning Russia that it will face catastrophic consequences if it uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan appeared on ABC on Sunday. We have communicated directly, privately, to the Russians at very high levels that there will be catastrophic consequences for Russia if they use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. We have been clear with them and emphatic with them that the United States will respond decisively alongside our allies and partners. And we have protected those communications, which we have done privately to the Russians, but they well understand what they would face uh, if they went down that dark road. Jake Sullivan's comment comes days after Russian President Vladimir Putin threatened to use nuclear weapons to protect Russia. This comes as Russia's moving towards annexing parts of occupied Ukraine, vowing to protect the areas as if they were Russian territory. Referendums on joining Russia are being held in four areas. In Russia, police arrested at least 730 people across 32 cities on Saturday alone, as protesters demanded Putin reverse his decision to hold Russia's first military draft since World War II to call up 300,000 additional troops to fight in Ukraine. Thousands of draft-age men have also attempted to flee Russia, which faces accusations it is disproportionately drafting men from rural areas and from ethnic minorities. In Siberia, a gunman was arrested for shooting the head of the local military draft office. Some of the most intense protests have been in the predominantly Muslim region of Dagestan, where at least 100 protesters have been arrested. There are also reports authorities are drafting Ukrainian men living in areas occupied by Russia to fight Ukraine. At the United Nations Saturday, the Chinese foreign minister, Wang Yi, spoke at the U.N. General Assembly. He called for peace talks to end the war in Ukraine. China supports all efforts conducive to the peaceful resolution of the Ukraine crisis. The pressing priority is to facilitate talks for peace. The fundamental solution is to address the legitimate security concerns of all parties and build a balanced, effective and sustainable security architecture. We call on all parties concerned to keep the crisis from spilling over and to protect the legitimate rights and interests of developing countries. From Russia, a gunman opened fire at a school today, killing at least 13 people, including seven children. The shooting occurred about 600 miles east of Moscow. At least 97 asylum seekers have died after their boat sank off the coast of Syria. The boat had left Lebanon and was trying to reach Italy. One survivor, Ibrahim Mansour, spoke to Al Jazeera from a hospital bed. 
I cry all the time. I'm in shock. I saw bodies and horrible images. My heart hurts. I tried to help children and another man, Abed. I tried to keep their spirits alive, but I couldn't. This is hurting me, especially because of the child who was holding on to me before I lost him. They told me he died. The dead included 24 children and 31 women. Most of the boat's passengers were Lebanese, Syrians and Palestinians. It was one of the deadliest boat disasters in the eastern Mediterranean. In the Philippines, at least five people were killed after Typhoon Noru slammed into the northern island of Luzon on Sunday with sustained winds of 115 miles per hour. The storm, which is known locally as Typhoon Carding, brought flash flooding that damaged thousands of homes, forced the evacuation of tens of thousands of residents, and cut off electricity to millions of people across two provinces. The Philippines' capital, Manila, was largely spared the storm's wrath. In Canada, Hurricane Fiona crashed into Nova Scotia Saturday with record-setting ferocity, devastating coastal communities with hurricane-force winds and leaving hundreds of thousands of people in the dark. Fiona was fueled by anomalously warm ocean surface temperatures that allowed it to maintain its strength much farther north than usual. It made landfall with the lowest barometric pressure of any storm ever observed in Canada. In Newfoundland, the mayor of Port said Fiona had left the seaside town looking like a war zone with at least one person missing and presumed dead after her home was washed out to sea. This is Nova Scotia's premier, Tim Houston. We know that the, the climate is, is changing for sure. Uh, we're seeing, you know, if you look around the world, you're seeing fires, storms. Uh, certainly this is a historic storm um, for this province. There's no question about that. The damage is significant. But right now, the, the priority right now is getting power back to people, getting people a safe shelter, getting, you know, some, some return to normal. That will take time. In Puerto Rico, about half the island remains without electricity one week after Hurricane Fiona brought devastating flooding that overwhelmed the island's fragile electrical grid. Officials say one in five households and businesses still have no running water. Meanwhile, Puerto Rican farmers are warning of a food crisis after Fiona flooded fields near peak harvest time, destroying crops of staple foods. A farmers association in eastern Puerto Rico says 90 percent of the plantain crop was destroyed. A hurricane warning is in effect for parts of the Caribbean, with Tropical Storm Ian forecast to strengthen before its expected landfall in far western Cuba late this evening. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has declared a statewide state of emergency ahead of the storm's expected arrival on Wednesday. Forecast models predict Ian will strengthen to a major Category 4 hurricane with 130-mile-per-hour winds before slamming into Florida's panhandle late Wednesday. Leaders of the small island state of Vanuatu have made an urgent plea for nations to sign a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. The proposal would see nations agree to end all new coal, oil and gas projects while phasing out the use of fossil fuels. Speaking to the U.N.'s General Assembly Friday, Vanuatu's president also called for nations to make ecocide a crime punishable by the International Criminal Court. And he called on the U.N.'s International Court of Justice to rule that people have a right to be protected from the adverse impacts of the climate crisis. Fundamental human rights are being uh, violated as we uh, begin uh, measuring climate change, not in degrees of Celsius or tons of carbon, but in human lives. The time is up 
action is required now. And that is why the nations of the Blue Pacific continent are leading a global initiative to bring climate change uh, to the International Court of Justice, uh, the only principal UN organ that has not yet uh, been given an opportunity to weigh in on the climate crisis. That was Vanuatu's president, Nikanike Vuru Baravu. This is Democracy Now! here in New York. Thousands of people marched through the streets Friday to demand urgent action on the climate crisis as world leaders wrapped up the U.N. General Assembly. It was one of uh, 450 climate strike demonstrations held worldwide by the youth-led climate movement Fridays for Future. This is Namante Ninkimo, an indigenous activist from Ecuador's Amazon region, winner of the 2020 Goldman Environmental Prize. As female defenders living in the community, we come to make visible our struggle because it's very important people out there, such as in New York, understand our struggle, our need to defend ourselves. Our forest is our home and we love and respect it. Also, we contribute life to the world, air. Authorities in Colorado have released shocking video of a train crashing into a parked police car where a handcuffed woman was sitting inside alone. The incident occurred in Platteville, Colorado, September 16th. Police had arrested 20-year-old Yureni Rios-Gonzalez after a traffic stop. After officers drew a gun on her and placed her in handcuffs, they put her in a patrol car parked on the train tracks. This police video released Friday in a a train can be heard blasting its horn before crashing into the car. What's going on? Why am I being... We'll explain everything in a second. Oh, I'll you in a second. Things are so confused. Can I get Take my a seat? seat? I will get your cell phone for you. Take a seat. Move your car! According to her attorney, Yereni Rios-Gonzalez suffered nine broken ribs, a fractured sternum and back and head injuries. The lawyer told the Denver Post, quote, she saw it coming and could hear the horn. She was trying to get the police officer's attention, screaming at them. She tried unlocking the door. She had her hands cuffed behind her back and was frantically trying to unlock the door. The American Civil Liberties Union is urging the Biden administration to close the privately run Torrance County detention facility in New Mexico, where about 160 immigrants are being held in what the ACLU calls atrocious conditions. A 23-year-old asylum seeker from Brazil died by suicide at Torrance last month. The detention center is run by the company Core Civic, formerly the Corrections Corporation of America. And a property management partly owned by Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has agreed to pay at least $3.25 million to the state of Maryland and to reimburse tens of thousands of tenants in Baltimore, Maryland's Attorney General Brian Frosch, 
accused the company, Westminster Management, of deceiving and cheating tenants and subjecting them to miserable living conditions. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, Italy's first far-right leader since Benito Mussolini has declared victory in Sunday's national election. We'll look at the return of fascism in Italy and its spread in Europe with Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, author of Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. Stay with us. Italian partisan song, The Wind Whistles, by Fonolo Band. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Italy, where the country's first far-right leader since Benito Mussolini, Giorgia Meloni, has declared victory, as the right-wing alliance led by her Brothers of Italy party looks set to win a clear majority in the next parliament. Meloni is also allied with Spain's far-right Vox Party, Poland's ruling Nationalist Law and Justice Party, Sweden's newly formed coalition government led by the anti-immigrant far-right Sweden Democrats Party, which emerged out of Sweden's neo-Nazi movement. Far-right French politician Marine Le Pen's party hailed Maloney's strong showing as a lesson in humility to the European Union. Maloney has vowed to shift the EU's politics sharply to the right. The pan-European progressive movement, co-founded by former Greek prime minister Yanis Varoufakis, said in a statement on the Italian election, quote, Italians must now repeat what their ancestors once did, defeat fascism, but not for the return of the politics as usual that brought the fascists to power in the first place, he said. As leader of the biggest party in the winning alliance from Sunday's election, Maloney is expected to become Italy's first woman prime minister after the new government sworn in. She addressed supporters Sunday night. This is surely, for many people, a night of pride, surely a night of payback, surely a night of tears, hugs, dreams, and memories. During her campaign, Georgia Maloney tried to downplay her party's post-fascist roots and instead to portray it as a mainstream conservative party. For more, we're joined by Ruth Ben-Ghiat, expert on fascism and authoritarianism, whose new article for The Atlantic is headlined The Return of Fascism in Italy, author of Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present, and a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. She publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy. 
Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiet, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you just start off by talking about, well, um, Georgia Maloney has declared victory. Talk about her and her party, what they represent. Yeah, um, Maloney is somebody who was a hardcore neo-fascist who um, was in the—with 15, she joined the party that was founded right after uh, Benito Mussolini's original party was banned in 1945. And this became the fourth largest party, the neo-fascist party, called the Italian Social Movement. And she was not only a militant, she became, by the 90s, the head of its student organization. And the flame, if you look at the logo of her party called Brothers of Italy today, which was founded in 2012, she insisted on keeping a tricolor flame in the logo. And that is the flame, uh, that's the symbol of the original neo-fascist party. And over the years, many people have told her uh, to get rid of that flame, uh, but she won't. So this tells us a lot about her, her loyalties, and she really sees her, her party as carrying the heritage of fascism into today, so much so that um, Ignacio La Russa, who's a party uh, elder, let's say, he said a few days ago, we are all heirs of the Duce. Huh. Let me go to a clip of Georgia Maloney as a teenager describing her support uh, for the fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. I believe that Mussolini was a good politician, which means that everything he did, he did for Italy. So take her from her teenage years, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, uh, to the present and to this victory uh, and the party uh, that she represents. So she is uh, as much a creation of Mussolini, let's say, uh, as Berlusconi. And Silvio Berlusconi, who is part of her far-right coalition, gave her her real start uh, as Minister of Youth in his very far-right government in 2008. And his party fused with the former the other, it was... It, the Italian social movement renamed itself the National Alliance. And these two parties fused. And the reason Brothers of Italy was founded, and she was very active in the founding, uh, is there was no more autonomous extreme right party in Italy. So that's important to know. Uh, and many of her positions, which she's now trying to say she's a conservative and a moderate, she has. She is a proponent of great replacement theory, the idea that uh, non-white births are going to extinguish white births. But she's so far right that some people espouse this theory as a natural outcome of demographic change. She actually is a conspiracy theorist. She believes, and she's, there's many tweets to this and many speeches, that there is a plot, a design, a plan, as she calls it, by Soros, by the EU, to kind of force uh, mass immigration onto Europe and Italy and extinguish everything that makes us who we are, she says. So talk about her views on immigration, as you talk about the uh, Great Replacement Theory, um, her views on reproductive rights, on her fierce opposition to the LGBTQ community. Yes, yeah, so a lot of what she uh, what she spouses can seem very familiar if you follow uh, the, the the far right in Hungary. Um, again, the obsession with George Soros, the opposition to what she calls LGBTQ lobbies 
who are ruining um, civilization with what she calls gender ideology. And she's an example uh, of what uh, political scientists call gender washing. When women politicians uh, say that they are for women and that they are going to improve female conditions, but actually they go after reproductive rights and they have a very specific idea of womanhood and the family, and that is very much rooted in the far-right ideology. And she also will seem familiar if you follow GOP politics. And important, I want to mention that she's very close with Steve Bannon. She's very close with the GOP. She's been to the National Prayer Breakfast. She's been to CPAC. And so her position on uh, abortion rights, uh, reproductive rights in general, uh, approaches all of these far-right parties. The position of Italy on abortion without Maloney, just it's overall what the law is? It was a very hard-won battle. As you can imagine, Italy is unusual because the Vatican is inside Italy. It's a very Catholic country. 1978, uh, abortion rights were granted. And what her party has done, we can look at what's happened in places where Brothers of Italy, her party, has already been governing, like Verona. Uh, and what she's done is uh, she's made it more difficult to access abortion. She's made it more complicated for women to exercise their reproductive right. I want to go to Georgia Maloney speaking to her supporters in Spanish, addressing the far-right Vox Party of Spain. The left defends the woman unless it encounters a criminal foreigner. At that moment, because of their ideology, the criminal foreigner is more valuable than the woman. And they would say that you're a dangerous extremist, racist, fascist, denier, homophobic. They would say you're not presentable and have incapable leaders to govern. They would say it is useless to vote for you because you don't have a chance to win. But you know what? Don't be afraid because they don't decide. You, the people, decide. The people are the first strength that the party needs. And this is more of her addressing Vox Party of Spain. Now is not the time for weak thoughts. Today, the left-wing secularism and radical Islam are a risk to our roots. Against this challenge, there is no middle ground. Either you say yes or you say no. Yes to the natural family, no to the LGBT lobby. Yes to sex identity, no to gender ideology. Yes to the culture of life, not the abysm of death. Yes to the University of the Cross, no to the Islamist violence. Yes to secure borders, no to mass migration. Yes to the work of our citizens, no to big international finance. Yes to the sovereignty of peoples, no to the bureaucrats in Brussels. And yes to our civilization. That was Georgia Maloney, a candidate for Italian prime minister when she spoke. She has now declared victory. So, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, talk about the neo-fascist uh, movement of Italy and how it affects the Vox Party of Spain, how it affects Sweden, how it affects Poland, how it affects Hungary. All of the leaders um, in these places have congratulated uh, Maloney on winning. Yeah, I will. I just want to mention, uh, you see uh, the yes and the no and her style of speaking. She's a demagogue. And at the end of my book, Strongman, which is about male uh, leaders and machismo, uh, I predicted that there will be a female-led far-right authoritarian government. 
we thought it would be Le Pen, but you hear her style of speaking, uh, which is very much the charismatic demagogue. So they can come in the in the figure of a woman, too. Um, she is part of this far right international, a kind of you could call it a second fascist international. I studied and wrote about the first one in the 30s and 40s. Um, and they, you know, in Hungary is is a node as a hub. And they're very active in trying to have this kind of new political culture that is transnational. Fascism has always been transnational. And the fact that she's polylingual, she speaks four languages, has always been a help to her. So she's a real, you know, European politician. And she also speaks English. That's going to help her with the GOP. But there is a, a transnational design to bring this new far-right culture into being. And it's absolutely terrifying. You heard what she is saying Um you know, it's Islamophobic, it's racist. Uh, you're going to expect a very draconian treatment of immigrants, uh, boats turning back, you know, deaths. Um, we'll have to see we'll have to see what she does uh, in terms of how constrained she is. She has a big majority in parliament. So in terms of what actually happens, we'll have to see. But she is a female demagogue. Um, Italy's always been a political laboratory. Uh, Mussolini invented fascism. In the 90s, Berlusconi brought fascists into the government, neo-fascists, for the first time. He broke a taboo. And now Italy has the first female, uh, you know, far-right prime minister. Especially for young people, and you teach um, Ruth Ben-Ghiat young people at New York University. Um, can you talk about who Mussolini was to understand what she is embracing and Mussolini and Hitler's connection? Yeah, it's really important that um, the reason I mentioned Berlusconi also is when he brought back neo-fascists into the government, he also did a, a whole rehab whitewashing job, which affected generations of Italians. He actually told uh, the then journalist Boris Johnson in 2003, Mussolini never killed anyone. Now, instead, Mussolini's dictatorship committed genocide in Libya. Uh, mass war crimes in Ethiopia used gas in its colonies, uh, participated in the Holocaust. It was the first dictatorship, and he was so he was so successful in his repression and his propaganda. He was a big star in America. He had a syndicated column in Hearst newspapers that Hitler worshipped him through the entire 1920s, and Hitler actually learned a, a lot from him, um, including Mussolini was a fan of Great Replacement Theory. And he gets short shrift. Uh, Hitler is the one who is remembered. But Mussolini was very, very important, very innovative. And you see that Miloni um, is part of this heritage. Can you talk <clears throat> about those who say, no, she is not fascist, she's conservative? And then let's talk about not only her influence in Europe, but also in the United States and her relationship with Donald Trump. Yeah, well, you know, this is what do we call these things today? Do we call them fascist? And, and you know, there is this whitewashing that's going on where Viktor Orban has said for years that his is an illiberal democracy, when honestly, there's nothing democratic about what goes on in Hungary today. But it sounds good. And, you know, there's these people like Orban, he's trying to have it both ways. He gets EU funds and then he, you know, he has this electoral autocracy. So Maloney's an extreme case because she's calling herself a conservative, which is what we're hearing from the MAGA Republicans in, in our country, too. They keep calling themselves conservatives. But as we see, 
just go back to that speech, that demagogic speech. There's nothing conservative about Meloni. There's nothing conservative about her party. Repeat, her party was founded because there was no autonomous extreme right party to carry on the heritage of fascism. So, again, if you can go to um, today, what's happening in the United States, talk about the violence of uh, January 6th, talk about Trump um, uh, advocating for everyone from QAnon to the Proud Boys, and then we're going to be speaking with the author of a new book on the Proud Boys. Yeah, it's a good segue because the GOP, I've been saying for a long time, has to be seen as a far-right authoritarian party in the model of the European parties. And what's going on right now, it's we're having history is being made before our eyes. The party is remaking itself uh, to support whatever form of illiberal rule it wants to have in the United States. And of course, we're seeing this at the state level in Texas and especially in Florida and so when a party is remaking itself, it pushes some people out. And these are, let's say, moderates like Cheney, Kinzinger, all these all the people who were anti-Trump and who is being invited in lawless people, violent people. That's why if you want to get ahead in the GOP, your campaign ad has to have you and an assault rifle. Um, people who participated in January 6th, criminals are being invited to, uh, you know, run for office and actual extremists like Mark Fincham in Arizona. He is an oath keeper. He's very proud. He's very public about being an oath keeper, a member of the violent extremist group. And and so he's now the Arizona candidate for secretary of state. So getting ahead in today's GOP, being an extremist is a help to that because they are remaking themselves as a far right party. So they're going to be, I predict, a lot of interchange between Maloney's neo-fascists and the GOP. Ruth Ben-Ghiad, expert on fascism and authoritarianism, author of the book Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present, a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. We'll connect to Professor Ben-Ghiad's new article for The Atlantic titled The Return of Fascism in Italy. She also publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy. Next up, we continue with fascism or neo-fascism to the far right here at home, as the House committee investigating the January 6th Capitol is set to hold another public hearing Wednesday. We look at one of the key groups that carried out the attack, the Proud Boys. We'll speak with the author of the new book, We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. Stay with us.
Creator has a master plan performed by Pharaoh Sanders. The legendary saxophonist passed away Saturday at the age of 81. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The House Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection is set to hold its first fall public hearing. Wednesday. Democracy Now! will be live streaming it starting Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern. The investigation is reportedly nearing its conclusion. The committee is preparing an interim report of its findings set to be released, not clear when, whether it's going to be before the midterm elections or after. Um, and it will apparently uh, make the case that Donald Trump violated the law by refusing to take action to call off the Capitol attack. The question is, will they recommend criminal charges to the Department of Justice? Today, we look at one of the far-right extremist groups that helped plan and carry out the insurrection as part of its goal to normalize political violence. Yes, we're going to look at the Proud Boys. A document obtained by our next guest and just published for the first time last week in The Guardian gives a very rare insight into how the Proud Boys plan to carry out a pro-Trump MAGA march in New York City on January 10th, 2021, just days after the attack on the Capitol January 6th that they participated in. The plan was shared by the Proud Boys through Telegram and was described as a, quote, strategic security plan and call to action for Proud Boys. It was apparently written by the president of the group's New York branch, called for about 60 Proud Boys to be designated into seven tactical teams of five to eight men. For more, we're joined by Andy Campbell, senior editor at HuffPost, who discusses this and much more in his newly published book, We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of America. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Andy. Congratulations on your new book. Why don't you start off with this document that you found and then broaden it to who the Proud Boys are? Thanks, Amy. Well, the Proud Boys put together this document uh, in preparation, like you said, for, for an event in New York City on January 10th. It was sent to them on January 5th, right before January 6th. And, you know, it shows how meticulous the Proud Boys planning is before these events. I mean, they're checking to see where police are, what positions they should be in, what weapons that they're allowed to bring into any jurisdiction, and how they can uh, you know, use their optics to get away with it after their violence. They certainly planned to clash with leftists at that uh, event, and and they planned to, quote, do the police's job for them. Uh, you know, the, there's a lot of planning that goes into these. And that, that event actually fizzled out because of the carnage at the insurrection. But that's not to say that the Proud Boys are done with their events. In fact, they've only increased the amount of events that they're latching onto, bringing violence to all sorts of, of you know, leftist events going forward. But the Proud Boys, you know, I think January 6th showed Americans the Proud Boys for the first time. But but they've been on a parade of, of violence at the behest of Trump and the GOP for six years now. You know, they were brought up by uh, reactionary talk show host Gavin McGinnis uh, to 
to fight the GOP's grievances in the street. Uh, he built the Proud Boys on his talk show live, and he peppered them with bigoted tenets. One of his one of his tenets was to venerate the housewife. He believes that women and women in the workforce, particularly, uh, are responsible for the end of masculinity. He also uh, peppered them with with racist tenets. He uh, he told them that they can anyone can join the Proud Boys, uh, but that they have to understand and accept that white men were responsible for the success of Western culture. And so there is a you know white supremacist leaning here. But it's with those tenets that Gavin McGinnis told the Proud Boys they need to go out and do what crusty old Republicans cannot do and fight in the street. Take that rage that you have about immigrants and Muslims and LGBTQ and go fight it out in the street. And they've done so time and time again. They've been in orbit of so many acts of political violence over the years. And and, and they've normalized this political violence by sidling up to uh, the top levels of the GOP, including uh, Trump's confidant, Roger Stone. So they have friendships in the GOP. They have friendships in media. Fox News celebrates these guys. And they have uh, uh, support from a wide swath of the American right. And so going forward, even though many of their top leaders sit in jail awaiting sedition charges following January 6th, they are still working as planned. So I want to go to a YouTube video created by Vic Berger back in 2018 featuring Gavin McGinnis, the founder of Proud Boys, discussing the group's origins. He's talking um, with Joe Rogan, as well as calling for violence in the streets. I started this gang called the Proud Boys. And, the Proud uh, Boys? The Proud Boys. What is the, what's Proud Boys about? We will kill you. That's the Proud Boys in a nutshell. We will kill you. We look nice. We seem soft. We have boys in our name. But like Bill the Butcher and the Bowery Boys, we will assassinate you. Now, part of the reason I agree to do the talk is because I'm allowed to bring all my guys. And we can fight our way in and fight our way out. I think it's our job to do it. And the cops just turn a blind eye. So that's Gavin McGinnis. He's co-founder of Vice Media and founder of the Proud Boys. If you can talk about both and also the origin of the name Proud Boys, very interesting. Certainly. So so Gavin was co-founder of Vice News and he served as uh, Vice Media's uh, uh, editorial voice until about 2008 when Vice is becoming more popular uh, and and they're more beholden to advertisers and Gavin McGinnis's voice uh, wasn't wasn't good for that he he wrote you know these abhorrent screeds in the pages of Vice including a veritable guide for date rape I mean this this was this was a bad guy and so he gets kind of pushed out he's in he's he's sort of a shock jock comedian type and he starts his own show the Gavin McGinnis show where he doubles down on on this divisive and bigoted rhetoric um, you know whereas his friends in the comedy circles back then you know sort of got with the culture and moved on from from the misogynist, bigoted rhetoric. 
He doubles down and he brings his audience of angry young men over to his, his new show. And again, he is he is molding them into himself and into uh, what what Trump became. He, he builds the Proud Boys literally out of his audience live on his show. And and he descri- starts describing his his followers as disciples. He starts drinking with them uh, near his studio in Manhattan, and and he creates what he believes is a movement. Uh, He calls them the Proud Boys, and I'll tell you how he came up with that name, just to show you who this guy is. He is sitting at his kid's uh, music recital in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and he sees, after his kids go on stage, he sees a young a uh, boy, maybe 12 years old, with brown skin, get up and sing a song from the Aladdin musical titled Proud of Your Boy. He is absolutely reviled by this image. He hates musicals. He calls uh, on his show, he, he describes the kid as a fatherless Puerto Rican, describes him as gay, and and he mocks the boy. He mocks him uh, by singing the, the, the line over and over and over again. That line, proud of your boy, becomes a call-in card uh, for his viewers. It's, it's kind of like, you know, first-time caller, long-time listener on any other radio show. Proud of your boy, you know, gets shortened, and, and that's, how, that's where you get uh, the proud boy's name. But, but the, the, you know, Gavin McGinnis wanted anyone to join. You have neo-Nazis and the Proud Boys alongside people of color. He cast a wide net, but he the promise that all of these people are gathering under is that that ability to go out and fight it. I mean, Gavin McGinnis is kind of like an Alex Jones character, um, but, but instead of spewing conspiracy theories all day, he is pushing for political violence specifically in the name of GOP and Trump. So let's stick with Trump right now. I'd like to go back to 2020 to the first uh, presidential debate. Trump refused to condemn white supremacists after being questioned by debate moderator Chris Wallace of Fox News. What do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me a white name. Supremacists and right like me to condemn? White Proud supremacists boys. and right Proud, Proud boys. boys. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left, because this is not a right-wing own, problem. This is a left-wing Stand back and stand by, which became so famous. Uh, talk about this moment and the relationship between Trump and Proud Boys. Right. Well, you know, people argue over that line, <clears throat> whether or not Trump intended to activate the Proud Boys, uh, but it doesn't matter. The Proud Boys took that as marching orders. They saw Trump looking directly at them and saying, fight for me. And they began raising funds. One of their top leaders uh, published a blog calling for civil war. They saw January 6th as their last stand for Trump. And, and through their relationships with the GOP, they had uh, no reason not to believe that they were being given marching orders because in the previous six years and following January 6th, uh, they had full support from Trump's inner circle. None of these people have rebuffed them. In fact, they've uh, been on their side all along. 
I sat down with Roger Stone, Trump's confidant, uh, last year when he was under intense scrutiny for his proximity to the insurrection. And he admitted to me in that conversation that he had been advising the Proud Boys politically uh, for years and, in fact, you know, talked them through uh, getting out of their charges after an assault on protesters here in Manhattan in 2018. I mean, these guys were early on very connected politically to, to Trump's circle. And it's no surprise because Trump uh, is almost giddy about having people in the street for him, uh, you know, regardless of what they're doing. If it's violence, it's violence. And you notice there in, in, in that question he got on the stage that he immediately pivoted and said, this is a leftist problem. This is Antifa. That is exactly um, the kind of rhetoric that keeps the Proud Boys uh, around. I mean, a swath of the American public believes that Antifa and BLM and leftists are the same par of threat that the far right are, and it, it, and it makes them a sort of justified political option. It's the reason why they're able to stick around and, and the way that they've normalized political violence. I want to go to uh, January 6th Proud Boy Dominic Pizzola, who is among the first rioters to breach the Capitol using a stolen riot shield to smash through a Capitol window. This is one of Dominic Pizzola's attorneys, Martin Tankliff, speaking uh, to a WUSA 9DC news reporter back in June of 2021. A number of individuals have been made scapegoats. I think Dominic is just inclusive in it. Um, this is a day that we have turned into something that it really wasn't. It was, this was social justice. Um, this was a, a, an outpouring of individuals who wanted to express their feelings. And our country has gone through a period of time over the last two years where people have decided to step up to the plate, use their voices like it's never been heard before. And to isolate individuals like those who were at the Capitol on January 6th is a tragedy um, beyond comprehension uh, that I think most people can't understand. So if you could respond to Martin Tankliff, the lawyer for Dominic Pizzola. This is the framing that we're going to see uh, as Trump begins campaigning again. Uh, you know, January 6th to, to the GOP, the, the defendants there were a group of patriots. Trump has already uh, suggested that he, if he wins the presidency, is going to pardon everyone involved. And, you know, following January 6th, the right wing, uh, especially right wing media pundits, uh, were, were already pushing the narrative that either January 6th was committed by Antifa, which, of course, is not true, or that they were patriots that wanted to do something for their country. Ann Coulter, uh, a, a sort of loathsome media, longtime media pundit, wrote a blog in March of 2021 titled, Thank God for the Proud Boys, and characterized them as Trump's freedom fighters. She, she said that she used them for security, at which leftists showed up to protest, and she felt safer because of them. This is how these extremist groups are being characterized, and it's sanitizing them for the rest of the country. This this is the reason why the Proud Boys haven't dissolved, despite having this outsized role in, in January 6th. Not only were there dozens of Proud Boys there, but 
Five of them are now awaiting sedition, seditious conspiracy uh, trial in jail um, for for what the Justice Department believes is planning of of January 6th. And so going forward, you know, into this this election and the next, we're going to see through through the voters whether, you know, this kind of political violence is something that we accept because there is a slate of uh, extremist tied candidates all across the country, many of whom have direct ties to the people who committed January 6th. So I'm looking at The Washington Post, an article that recently came out. Five members of the extremist group Oath Keepers, including leader Stuart Rhodes, face trial for a seditious conspiracy in which U.S. prosecutors will try to convince jurors that Rhodes' call for an armed civil war to keep Donald Trump in power January 6, 2021, was literal and criminal. Uh, starting with jury selection on Tuesday and opening statements as early as Thursday, Rhodes' trial could reveal new information about about the quest to subvert the 2020 presidential election results as prosecutors continue to probe Trump's conduct and that of his inner circle. Florida and national leaders of the Oath Keepers were in contact with Proud Boys leaders and also with Trump political confidant Roger Stone, um, who you've also reported on. Uh, so at the beginning, I was reading from The Washington Post. If you can make all those connections for us, Andy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these seditious conspiracy trials are going to be super interesting. Um, you know, the, the Oath Keepers are tied in with the Proud Boys. The Proud Boys and Oath Keepers are both tied in with Roger Stone. And on the Proud Boys trial later this year, we have uh, Proud Boys leadership who have already agreed to testify against their own to get out of seditious conspiracy charges. So we may learn a lot about their connections on January 6th, but also their overall connections to Trump's inner circle. And certainly we already know they were very close. In fact, uh, Stuart Rhodes, the Oath Keeper, and Enrique Tario, the current chairman of the Proud Boys, um, were both in a, in a group text with Roger Stone on January January 6th, that group text was titled Friends of Stone. And certainly Stone told me that he sees Enrique Tario, one of uh, who's facing seditious charges, uh, he declared him his, his friend and his mentee. So I'm, I'm, I'm super interested to, to see where these trials lead us down the rabbit hole of Trump and, and what might be illuminated beyond what the January 6th committee has already brought forward. I think we're going to learn a lot. So if you can talk about Proud Boys and the number of people running for office at the local, at the state and the federal level linked to Proud Boys and these extremist movements that want to normalize political violence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Tario told me that there were some 30 Proud Boys running for office, big and small, uh, this year. I don't know if that's true, and I don't know that Proud Boys are going to have uh, a lot of success running for office, but they have ties to, to GOP that they've built over the years, and the extremist slate of candidates um, uh, support them all the way. I'm looking at races like Joe Kent in Washington State running for uh, a Republican running for House there. Uh, he is tied to a number of extremist figures, um, hangs out with them. And he also sent $11,000 uh, to a Proud Boy for consulting fees. I mean, these guys are, are, are very well connected and they support one another. I'm, I'm also looking at, uh, you know, places where 
Proud Boys have taken small seats of power to push their ideology. The Miami-Dade, uh, Florida Republican Executive Committee has something like six Proud Boys on it already. And, and you know, the, the leader there uh, already said, well, we have a diverse group of people. These guys want to uh, influence politics on the local level um, so that they can then push for something bigger later on. Um, but any success that they have in politics uh, is, is just speaks to how normalized uh, uh, this has become. And you have places like uh, Arizona, where Republicans are calling for vigilantes like the Oath Keepers to, to show up at ballot boxes. And so you can only imagine what it's going to feel like for voters out there uh, when you have this extremist contingent that includes Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and really everyday Americans on the right uh, waiting uh, and watching at the polls when all of these guys do is commit violence. It's, it's going to be uh, uh, such a scary uh, election season. And it's not just the ballot boxes. It is going into the future. You know, the Proud Boys are being activated not just by Trump, but by everything that Fox News says. Fox News, you know, was railing all summer about drag queens and LGBTQ and trans issues. And the Proud Boys, uh, activated by that rhetoric, have been showing up at uh, abortion clinics and children's hospitals and libraries where there are drag queen story hours and adding violence and intimidation to that atmosphere. Um, uh, this, this political violence has spread from the MAGA rallies and BLM rallies from before and into everyday American life. Can you talk about how Doug Mastriano fits into this picture, the candidate for governor in Pennsylvania? Well, certainly. I mean, Doug Mastriano is is part of, you know, this this machine of uh, of conspiracy, conspiracy and political violence and extremism. He, you know, he has certain, you know, ties to extremists. And, and what you're seeing is a cycle um, uh, where, where, you know, say QAnon conspiracy theorists and Alex Jones type plant a seed uh, that, that satanic pedophiles are coming after your children in the form of drag queens. And then the Maestrianos of the world and the, the, the Donald Trumps of the world sort of foster and sanitize that seed and grow it for their audiences. And then the Proud Boys and other extremists show up in force to burn it all to the ground. I mean, Maestriano follows Trump on a lot of rhetoric. And so his success, you know, shows that we are not moving away at all uh, from from the extremist contingent. And in fact, the Republican Party appears to be doubling down on it going forward. Andy Campbell, we just have a minute. Um, you have spent a long time now writing this book, We Are Proud Boys, um, how a right-wing street gang ushered in a new era of American extremism. What most shocked you in your research and the GOP also normalizing um, the political violence issue? After January 6th, the fact that the Proud Boys only ramped up their violence over the years and, and, and the fact that uh, the GOP only embraced them more, that was surprising to me. The fact that they didn't dissolve shows not only their resiliency as a group, but it shows where we are headed in the future of politics. Political violence is normalized for the right. And again, voters are going to have to decide whether this is what we want going forward. 
January 6th insurrection uh, becoming legitimate political discourse. What are you expecting from Wednesday, the next uh, public hearing of the January 6th committee? I think the committee has done a great job of, of surfacing the problem, uh, this extremist crisis we have. But I also think that we are 10 steps behind with our, our leadership and with our law enforcement uh, on, on responding to the crisis. And so I'm, I'm hoping that there is a culture shift uh, over the next few years where we are not just understanding the problem, Two but responding to it. Andy Campbell, thanks so much. Senior editor at HuffPost, the new book, We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism.